Football is a working class game where anyone can be anyone on their day. And it's that that makes it incredible. It's that that's made it the global force that it is today. Like a few years ago, uh, Leicester City, which, Pete, have you heard of Leicester City? Not that one. No, right? So many of you, many of you would never have heard of Leicester City. A few years ago, Leicester City won the league. They won the Premier League, right? It was the most incredible thing to witness. It gave every fan hope, everyone. They have as many Premier League titles as Liverpool. They have won more than Tottenham, and they're not invited into this rich boys clique because the wealthy teams, they got together to try to stop that achievement ever happening again. And that isn't sport. And if this happens, and unfortunately, I, I really do think it will, I don't want to be overdramatic, but I, I, I do think it's the end of the sport that we loved. I, I, it truly is. Like, I, do, I, don't, I think it's going to happen, and I don't think there's anything we can do about it. But what we can do, and I hope as fans, that we will remember the names of these owners... The owners of these teams that made this decision, how they hid behind a devastating pandemic as a reason to announce this while a season's being played. They didn't consult a single player, not a single manager. They certainly didn't consult the fans of their teams. They bought into a sport that so many of us live for at 3pm on a Saturday. They took it and they are going to crush it without ever thinking of the damage that's being done. Don't forget the people who did this. It's them. It's those owners in a decade's time when the Super League's thriving and, you know, I'm sure it's great and great goals and all those things. And these owners will think that it's all water under the bridge. Don't ever forget that it was them, those owners. They took something so pure and so beautiful and they beat the love and the joy out of it and they did it for money. They just did it for money and it's disgusting. And I know you don't care, but I do. We'll be right back with more of the Late Late Show. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, gang, let's uh, get to the uh, festivities, shall we? It's uh, Tim Hanlon, your pal, your, uh, your chief uh, officer, of uh, defunctness, uh, previously domiciled, relocation, contraction, all kinds of uh, forgotten sports hijinks. It's Good Seats still available. Yes, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming by. And uh, as uh, longtime listeners of this show will know, uh, certainly we go way, way back into all kinds of sports history with uh, Various uh, leagues and teams that, uh, for whatever reasons, are no longer with us, uh, uh, major league uh, sporting events of sorts, uh, you name it, we kind of get into to all those things. And that doesn't mean, though, we don't get into things that are uh, more timely, shall we say. I, we love to make the argument that everything old is new again. Uh, there's always the rediscoveries of these teams and leagues or or a revisiting or a, uh, a broaching, I guess, of, of – uh, of ills or uh, mistakes made uh, around ownership or or assumptions around sports and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, it, it just seems to be always more being made uh, around this topic that we've uh, stumbled across for ourselves. Uh, and frankly, look no further than last week. We uh, try to get the, this episode uh, hot and fresh and ready for you as uh, as quickly as we can. Uh, in this little podcast schedule that we've created for ourselves. And of course, it is the Super League. That's James Corden. Uh, if you've never watched the Late Late Show on CBS, uh, it's uh, it's great. Uh, I think, frankly, most people 
Uh, don't watch James and his hijinks uh, live very much anymore. And uh, I think, frankly, that applies to just about every late show uh, that's on uh, late night TV these days. Uh, but like a lot of others, uh, we discovered that clip uh, on YouTube a couple of days uh, or, uh, frankly, uh, hours after uh, he gave it. And uh, it was that's only a portion uh, of his longer. I don't even call it a tirade, but because uh, he's a comedian, he's a great entertainer. Um, but find it on YouTube or wherever else you uh, find video clips and stuff, because it, it's really it's really impassioned. And I think, uh, you know, as a as a British citizen, uh, James Corden comes across as being very honest and emotional about what transpired uh, nary a week and a half ago. Uh, it, it was as things was announced, uh, I think, in earnest on uh, uh, Monday, April 19th. Uh, and as we record this, that's uh, not only a week, maybe a week and a half ago, and we dropped this about two weeks ago now. Um, uh, some rumors of it had been leaking out a few days beforehand. And and certainly, I think uh, uh, most people, most observers of the sport globally uh, or in Europe uh, or hell, even domestically here, are, would not have been surprised uh, or were kind of anticipating something along these lines for, for some time. Uh, but the fact that it was actually announced, uh, the speed at which it was announced, uh, the timing of it uh, in the face of UEFA uh, rejiggering its uh, Champions League structure yet again uh, to accommodate uh, these sort of uh, clamoring forces of, of, of dollars seeking to make more of them. Uh, but just frankly, the, the, uh, the, the, the sheer amount of volume and speed of the uh, the pushback against it, uh, because literally within a couple of days, uh, the just the uh, the the tsunami of of negative uh, feelings about this Super League uh, just literally engulfed this thing within a matter of days. I seventy two hours maybe, and by the end of the week, this the twenty second, the twenty third, you had folks like J P Morgan who were putting up the dollars to sort of bankroll this thing. Uh, you had uh, Mia Culpas from all of the Premier League participants. Uh, you had all kinds of commendation. Commendation? No. Condemnation. That's the word. Condemnation. Come on. I haven't seen either of those words in a long time, so I'm sorry I screwed them up. Sorry. But you know what I mean. I mean, from all corners of the soccer world, uh, the sporting community writ large, uh, fans, of course, in particular, uh, just in all circles, almost uniform in its just disdain uh, for the very uh, uh, notion of this concept, let alone its execution. Now, uh, our, our conversation this week is with our pal Ian Plenderleith, uh, who you may remember uh, from our great episode number 49, a couple of years back, uh, he uh, writing the great book called Rock and Roll uh, soccer, uh, the story of the North American Soccer League. And and Ian is a, a columnist for Soccer America and a lot of other uh, soccer publications out there. So who better to kind of weigh in uh, into uh, kind of an overview of sort of what the hell's going on with this thing? Uh, sadly, a, a bit of a, a, a an understanding that, that this may not be sort of the last attempt to do this kind of stuff, but frankly, a little bit of a conversation of how we got here. Um, we know how mo big money has been sort of pushing uh, on the sport of soccer, we certainly know about the globalization of the sport for all its uh, goodness. Certainly a lot of not goodness uh, when it comes to uh, just uh, the uh, decision making around money, foreign investment in uh, in things like the Premier League, uh, U.S. owners and their interpretations, frankly, 
uh, or their uh, how they grow up in uh, a sporting domain that uh, is very much centrally controlled and is about spreadsheets and big business, uh, increasingly private equity and those kinds of things, right? Uh, and and what happens when you shake all those things up? Um, not all of it's good, right? Uh, the idea of global branding and 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 churning out uh, jerseys and and bigger uh, subscription fees to watch these games, these world tours uh, featuring uh, exhibitions uh, 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 that aren't really comp- competitions at all. Uh, the greed, frankly, that creeps into it. Um, you know, and these are people like you know the Glazer family and. Uh, the John Henrys of the world and, um, you know, the Manchester cities and, and, and you know, I, I, having teams, at, 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 uh, you know, in MLS and in the Australian League as a sort of uh, a, a global platform, if you will, in addition to Man City and the Premier League. Uh, you know, we can debate all of these things and whether they're good or, or, or not so good. But look, all of that stuff and more, as we get into our conversation with Ian in just a few minutes, uh, really kind of sets the stage for why this is even an idea and a concept and even something that's on the drawing board with with money behind it. Um, you know, I, I some will argue it's too late. It, this is just inevitable. Um, maybe and frankly, hopefully, hopefully it's not. Uh, you know, the the uniqueness of domestic leagues uh, and the countries in which they compete, uh, the, 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 the pristineness, I guess, of, of competition, whereas James kind of hints. Uh, you know, anybody can beat anybody on a given day, you know, cup competitions and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to get into a very first hot take on this. I don't think it would come as a surprise to, for me to sort of share this. It's ridiculous or sadden, sad, sad, very sad. There you go. Uh, Super League. Uh, it's quick rise and uh, uh, quicker demise. And uh, and perhaps uh, maybe what is to come from this idea. Uh, and I think, sadly, uh, it's probably not an idea that uh, will go away quietly. But let's get into all of that stuff. Our first hot take. And, and we we do reserve the right to do that kind of stuff, even though the story is still playing out uh, as we get into our uh, quick and early discussion on this European Super League. And again, the teams we're talking about Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Man City, Man United. Tottenham Hotspur in the English Premier League, AC Milan, Inter Milan, and Juventus uh, in Serie A in Italy, and three Spanish clubs, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona, and Real Madrid. Uh, some of those teams, not the um, Premier League ones, but some of those uh, clubs are, are still, as we record this uh, and drop this, are still technically part of this league and have not renounced their membership. Uh, so this is a story that's going to play out for uh, a longer period of time. But does it qualify for our little uh, our corner of uh, of obsession? Yeah, it's it's a league that <laughs> literally came and went uh, in less than a week's time. And uh, we get into that with uh, our pal Ian Plenderleaf. Uh, and he, the uh, international correspondent for Soccer America and the author of uh, the great book Rock and Roll Soccer, the story of the NASL coming up uh, in a few moments time. Uh, you will enjoy it. And uh, it is the beginning of probably multiple conversations uh, around this topic. Uh, first, a promotional note. Uh, we always like to feature one of our great sponsors, especially one of those who has uh, uh, merch uh, to uh, consider in uh, specifically our realm of, of goodness, the, that of for- forgotten sports and teams and leagues and stuff. 
Uh, and you hear me uh, tout uh, these guys often, and uh, there's a reason why I do. And they're Streaker Sports, the purveyors of sports culture. That's their nickname, StreakerSports.com. And uh, the promo code is Good Seats. That's one word, Good Seats, for 15% off all of your purchases. Uh, as you know, they they all kinds of great uh, sports culture stuff, the Caddyshack collection, uh, the uh, Bill Raftery Onions collection, uh, all kinds of uh, wonderful assemblages, uh, curations of stuff, uh, and uh, new arrivals all the time, uh, including uh, things like the National Lacrosse League. That's uh, something we, uh, our pal uh, Steve Holroyd and I uh, have talked about for some time, and Dave Coleman, uh, we've talked about a sort of lacrosse history. We're talking about the National Lacrosse League, not the current one that plays indoors, but the original one from 1974 and 75. You'll find all the teams from that there. Uh, there's a new CBA, Continental Basketball Association collection. Uh, Lord knows a couple of uh, episodes devoted to that uh, in previous episodes. But of course, true to this and all kinds of other leagues and stuff, but true to this week's uh, episode, uh, as we uh, get into uh, not only the current situation of pro soccer, but some of the um, uh, you know foundational tributaries, uh, the North American Soccer League makes an appearance in this conversation. Uh, as you can imagine, the cosmos maybe being uh, a template or an avatar for sort of this global super brand. I, I just uh, saw a couple of comments uh, on on uh, social media this uh, last week where uh, some folks living in Japan and, and some other places uh, they uh, they posted some old uh, Cosmos articles from some tours that the Cosmos did back in the seventies, and he st- says that he still. Uh, gets inquiries from his Japanese friends about the Cosmos. It's still a brand that uh, people remember and it resonates. Uh, but the NASL collection at streakersports.com is awesome. There's every shirt there under the sun, just about, uh, I think with the exception of the Cosmos, which is its own separate uh, logo issue. Uh, but every other team that you can imagine or remember uh, and a couple of different sort of flavors of those, because there are lots of, lots of different logos for some of those teams as they sort of uh, uh, came and went in that league. They're all there. Everybody from the San Diego Soccers to the Le Manique de Montreal to the the Calgary Boomers to the St. Louis Stars and every everything in between. They're all there. Uh, and they're the sheet the the sheets no the shirts yeah that's what I'm saying the shirts are uh, lovingly crafted and they're they're really well made and and they're excellent. And why pay bust out retail when you don't have to? Use that promo code GOODSEATS, one word, GOODSEATS at streakersports.com. And, um, you know, for those shirts or anything else, for God's sake. So go for it. Thank you, Streaker Sports, for your sponsorship. Thanks for uh, you all in listener land for trying them out. Please do try because we get a couple of shekels of love. Uh, we could always use your support financially to keep the, our lights going. And, you know, it's, it's not free to make this stuff, frankly. And... Um, Thanks again to all involved, and thank you for continuing to listen. Let's get into our conversation as we do a quick, early, first hot take on the European Super League, the ill-fated Super League. Thank goodness. Uh, With our pal Ian Plenderleith, here's our conversation we had just a couple of days ago. Please, uh, as always, sit back and enjoy. I guess maybe we should kind of sort of start at the pre-beginning because this situation of this Super League kind of, you know, uh, it has been rumored for probably years if you've been paying attention, but the seeds of it, right, have been sown and and sprouting for, for quite some time. And maybe we can kind of just roll around in that sort of 
uh, dusty, uh, uh, you know, uh, soil and and seeds to kind of maybe set the tone for maybe what the hell had just happened this week. Yeah, the Super League has been kind of soccer's mythical beast since sometimes in the 1980s, I think it was, first of all, mooted. And then towards the end of the 1980s, the big clubs started to use it uh, in order to blackmail FIFA, basically, to reform the Champions League, uh, sorry, what was known then as the European Cup or the European Champions Cup. They wanted to reform it in, in order to... Uh, tilt the balance in their favor. They, I mean, what we saw last week was a league which wanted to to safeguard against any possible failure by abolishing relegation. What the clubs originally wanted when they reformed the, the European Champions Cup was a competition where they were guaranteed a certain number of games and where they would not be eliminated in September in the first round of a knockout cup competition. And on one level, it was entirely understandable. I think uh, Franz Beckenbauer was a big one who complained when Bayern Munich, where he was president at the time, were knocked out of the UEFA Cup in the first round and complained, well, now we have like a whole season on Wednesday nights where we could be filling our stadium where we simply don't have anybody to, to play against. Um, so from a commercial point of view, it was it was a, a bit of an inevitability that the, the clubs were going to get their way in reforming European competition. What that, of course, eliminated was the possibility of failure. For other fans, of course, uh, especially in Germany, it was absolutely fantastic when Bayern Munich got eliminated from the first round of the UEFA Cup by some team maybe from Bulgaria or somewhere like that. And uh, I, I think that uh, the likes of Bayern Munich and AC Milan, I think it were, they, they were knocked out of the Champions Cup by Trondheim of Norway at some point. Um, they just they, they did not want to countenance this possibility. So uh, they strong-armed UEFA with this whole threat to form their own league. And UEFA uh, reformed what were very good and exciting cup competitions into these drawn-out uh, group stage leagues that we now have and, uh, and, and that which, also sorry and that also included though uh, I'm guessing if I'm not mistaken if I remember it correctly is also sort of guaranteed slots for certain leagues right based on their relative or perceived strength and or dominance overall that's international right, competitions right, yeah. Right, yeah it, it was it was done gradually over the course of a few seasons first of all it was just the champions then it was the champions and second place team. So people said, well, why is it, how can you call it the Champions League if there are non-champions in it? But then, of course, champions just became a, a, a name to brand it by, and, and people kind of forgot about that criticism. And yes, and then gradually there were more and more slots uh, for, the, for the leagues, Italy, England, Spain, Germany mainly. And, and that's uh, been the case ever since, of course. And it's extremely hard now for any teams from uh, a lot of the struggling nations, I guess we'd call them the second tier nations, uh, Scotland, Switzerland, uh, Poland, those kind of places. They will get a team occasionally into the group stages, um, and then, but then they tend to get eliminated. Uh, and uh, it, The whole competition now is basically to eliminate as many of the small teams as possible so that the same 16 or so big clubs can compete the final 16. You kind of wonder why you, you could kind of 
understand in a way why the Super League was formed because they, they just wanted to dispense with all these games uh, and, and get rid of the pretense that they really care about soccer and other nations when really they just want to play against themselves and uh, maximize their revenue. So this separation was really for those paying attention, right? And that's probably more of the, the sort of a hard, harder core soccer fan, but I, who the, the separation was really kind of really kind of underway and, and, and probably money and, and prestige and all those kinds of things sort of underneath it, but perhaps maybe more muted than, than what we sort of seen spill out in the open in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I, I, yeah. absolutely, Tim. When, when you compare the, the protests we've seen in the last week compared with the dissent against the reform of the Champions League 25 odd years ago. It's completely different. That time, it kind of caught people unawares. It was presented, you know, reforms as to make the competition more exciting. Nobody, uh, it was apparent, of course, that the big clubs wanted to make more money out of it, and there was more money in it for them from TV rights. And, of course, if the further you progressed in the competition, the more, the more money you made. You made money from points in the group stage and so forth. Um, but in terms of, of people protesting about the, at the time, it was mainly down to the sort of left field press and I guess fans of smaller teams chunted about it. The football associations of the, the smaller nations went along with it. I mean, maybe they thought they didn't have any chance of defeating this amendment. Maybe they thought that they had a chance of getting in uh, with a slice of the pie. Now, I wrote a piece for the magazine When Saturday Comes in 1997, pointing out, uh, as one or two other people did at the time, the dangers of this uh, of, of this reform of the Champions Cup, which was obviously going to create two-tier um, soccer, uh, two tiers of wealth and soccer in Europe. And at that time, I was living in Zurich uh, in, in Switzerland, and they that season had qualified for the group stage of the Champions League. And they put their prices up for tickets by seven. They increased the price of a normal ticket by seven, uh, sevenfold. And so it was very expensive to watch this game. They played against Ajax Amsterdam, uh, Rangers of Scotland, and uh, I'm blanking on the third team, but but I think it's Ozera of France. And they won their first three games in the group stage. The whole nation was like, great, look at this Champions League. We can compete. They then lost their second three games and uh, and were actually eliminated. But for them, for Grasshopper Zurich at the time, who are now in the Swiss second division, at the time they thought if we can win our domestic league every year, we can compete in the Champions League every year, then we guaranteed a certain amount of money and we'll be one of the one of the big boys. But it became very difficult for for teams in, in, in the second tier nations to, to compete, as you see now. I mean, when did the team from Switzerland uh, last make the quarterfinals, for example? Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, I'm rambling on a bit here. But um, basically, it was it was it was a stitch up at the time, and it was kind of passed through on the sly. And the, the kind of media, negative media reaction we had to the European Super League uh, this week. Uh, negative reaction from media, negative reaction from players, uh, coaches, uh, administrators, politicians, and of course, uh, absolutely crucial in this with the reaction of the fans. Um, nothing, we did nothing, you didn't see anything like that back in, in, the, in the late 1980s or the early 1990s when, when, these, uh, when the Champions League was first birthed. But that, se- that separation that was also creeping into the domestic leagues as well, right? You had sort of the rich getting richer, so to speak, and and it also begot or begat a 
uh, I don't know, sort of an attractive uh, investment thesis that, uh, you know, sort of led to, let's call it foreign investment and or sort of super team uh, kind of dynamics that uh, perversely uh, affected these leagues as well, right? It wasn't just at the sort of uh, European league level, right? You had, you, 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 and you see it for, you know, years and years and years where the Bayerns of the world would, you know, routinely uh, win or come in second place in the, in the Bundesliga. Um, and, and, and perversely, you have clearly, you know, everybody else, right, uh, trying to get the crumbs and, and whatever else is, is available. But also, it's when Bayern comes to town, even if you are the lowliest, you know, uh, qualifier, you just moved up to the, the top tier that year, right? That's a that's a, a boon, if you will, for at least two games a season because you get to play the big guys. So I guess what I'm trying to get in there is a question there is beyond sort of the European continental level, what's going on over the last number of years uh, in the domestic league situation? Because it seems to me that that sort of separation is, is sort of literally bubbling uh, up and or trickling down, shall we say, to the individual countries and their domestic leagues too. Well, there was a direct knock-on effect of the Champions League that the teams that competed in the Champions League made more, way more cash than the teams that were not competing in, in, in Europe and the domestic level. Obviously, that allowed them to buy better players, to pay them more wages, and that led to, uh, yeah, as well as a two-tier um, two tiers across European soccer, the two tiers also in, in domestic soccer. So you've got, um, as you say, Bayern Munich's a very good example. They're about to win their ninth successive title in Germany. You have the dominance, domination of uh, Juventus and the Milan clubs uh, in, in Italy, Barcelona and the two Madrid clubs in Spain. And then you can... In England, you can point to four or five, four or five big teams, uh, which are, of course, the, the usual suspects that uh, broke off to to briefly join the European Super League last week for two very funny days. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that was also at the time that was obvious that that was going to happen. And, and the, the team I just cited, you Grasshopper Zurich, was also going to happen at the second level. Uh, actually, ended up in Switzerland, happening with FC Basel who won their league, I think, something like eight or nine seasons in a row and were were rich on Champions League cash because they were able to make the group phase uh, a few times as well. And um, it's had a really damaging effect on just in terms of, of the attractiveness of the competition. You, it, it, in the 70s, when I grew up in England, Liverpool were the dominant team. They were a great team. They played great soccer. They won the European Champions Cup. But there were several seasons when they didn't win. And you had teams like Everton, Aston Villa, Nottingham Forest, Derby County. Uh, you even had teams like Queen's Park Rangers and, and West Ham United, Southampton, challenging for the English title. And that was much more interesting now. And when you get the occasional outlier like Leicester City, who even themselves were backed with, with large amounts of foreign cash, uh, you know, once, once, in a, once in a generation, a team like that will, may win the Premier League. But it's getting harder and harder. In Germany, nobody is coming close to, to competing with Bayern Munich. Um, so it's it's a little bit depressing. Uh, uh, the, the lack of um, the, just the lack of variety uh, in, in in seeing who win, wins a trophy at the end of the season. In Germany, there's a lot of talk about well, there, there are kids now at ten years old 
all their life they've lived with Bayern Munich as champions. And how does that make you know, the domestic, the Bundesliga interesting to them? And, and, and it's a very good question. And it's like the clubs are aware of this. Everybody's aware of this, but nobody wants to take any action to do anything about it. Um, other than going off this, this strange cliff edge, as we saw last week, of, the, of breaking off to, to, to form this revolutionary but very uh, fleeting league. And, uh, and I think something we can talk about today is how to take those reforms back in the other direction in order to, and, uh, and I think that's been one of the great things about this Super League uh, is, is that it's prompted a fantastic discussion in the last week. We are talking about things we should have been talking about 30 years ago, and we should have been talking about over the course of the last 30 years, but it has been a very low-level discourse on the need to redistribute wealth in soccer, to stop a handful of giant clubs dominating, to stop this tedious repetition of winners and the same competition year after year after year. So um, I think I think that uh, what is very exciting now about about the Super League is, ironically, it's 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 almost uh, it was not only the arbiter of the, not only the, the harbinger of its own destruction, it will hopefully be the the harbinger of a, a more constructive and uh, positive and more uh, more positive outlook for the future of soccer with with, with hopefully some uh, common sense and some imagination put into it. Well, look the the. The proverbial money is the root of all evil, right, uh, applies. That maxim is certainly uh, uh, front and center in all this. However, it does kind of cut both ways. And 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 maybe, you know, the um, it's interesting because you kind of hinted at it, right? The, the occasional Watford or Queens Park Rangers, right? You look at those stories, whether it's an Elton John or whoever else, right, decides at least, you know, domestically. Uh, and, and now over the last uh, dozen or so years, international outsider money um that's always that's sort of become the i guess modern formula right take uh second division club uh perhaps uh, with some uh, halo of past glory uh invest or take over ownership pay a ton of money uh for top talent uh fight like hell and get promoted and uh allow in the case of the UK, right, or the case of uh, Britain, uh, the um, you know the the Premier League riches to uh, to follow at least for a year or two, and then we'll see what happens, right? Once you're in the mix, you know, and you'll mm-hmm. see, keep up. Um, but I guess the question in there is, uh, it does cut both ways, right? You know, fans get energized, right? Because hey, here's a here's an owner who's going to commit and spend money and and be competitive and and. Get the team up, and and we're going to be competitive, and we're going to try to win it all. Yet, the uh, I, I guess there is a price to pay, if you will, literally and figuratively, when that money comes from various sources, maybe not sort of traditional, maybe international, maybe somewhat cynically as more of a true hardcore business proposition than it is anything to do with the love of football or or that it's about branding and all that kind of stuff, right? So I guess the question, sort of the last question of the prelude part of our conversation, is uh, fans. You know the rea- the reaction we've seen the last couple of weeks, and and especially this week with the Super League thing, it almost sounds to the sort of devil's advocate a bit of hip of hypocrisy, right? Because some of these fans have been very welcoming of the attention 
the Rocco Comissios of the world coming into Italy and and Syria. And, and you know, there just seems to be no shortage of folks. And, and there's a warm embrace because, hey, people are going to pay attention to this club and put money against it. However, it's also the undermining that that seems to have blown up now, now that this Super League uh, has sort of come and per- maybe gone. Yeah, uh, fans, it's been a big wake-up call for a lot of fans. You can definitely see that. Um, and that's, again, that's been very refreshing. But as, as as you point out, it is also slightly comical to see fans of, say, Chelsea, Manchester City, um, all of a sudden uh, uh, realizing what their clubs have been doing to soccer for the last 25 years and, and, and how they've got fat on the current system. And, and really, these clubs are just taking the current system to its logical conclusion, as, as, as uh, I kind of mentioned before. The, cha- the, the European Super League is really just a logical next step from the Champions League. It's, it's a further reassurance, uh, further insurance policy against failure and a further um, attempt to, to you know, increase the global reach and to, to increase revenues. So it's it's a, it's a very good point you make. Yeah, it's it's, but you know, better late than never. That and if supporters realize now what it is that that, that that's been happening to the game as a whole uh, the last couple of decades, then then I can only see that broadly uh, as a good thing. Even if we can uh, also agree that there's a slightly comical aspect to to the the sudden turning on the on on the big owners of, of fans who've been happy to sit in those seats for the last 10, 20 years and and, and cheer on their team in the Champions League. All right. So so what do you let's segue into the events of the last week or so. And, and frankly, still playing out. We're recording this on the uh, the the weekend of the 24th, 25th of April. This is still literally not even a week old from its, if you will, announcement to uh, seeming uh, 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 just a demolition, although uh, there is absolutely things that are still alive. And I'm sure a lot, lots more still to play out, both short term and long term. But what what was. I guess in your deconstruction of the last week or so, like what was, what went wrong here? Because it, it, as we just established, a lot of these dynamics were already underway. I mean, the Glazers and my, Manchester United. I mean, these are not new stories in the United family story, right? Um, yeah. You know, and all of us, it seems to the outsider, right? All of a sudden, there's just sort of this wellspring of, you know, a, a, a desire for a reversion back to the quote unquote good old days, right? But as we kind of established before, you know, there's big money now in sports and and television and all that kind of stuff. And these things were, frankly, well underway. Why the sort of sudden, dramatic and, frankly, uh, seemingly universal uh, and abrupt uh, just negative reaction to this? Because it would seem, to your point earlier, this was a kind of a natural kind of conclusion or next step in this mm-hmm. ever corporatization of the beautiful game. Yeah. Well, there's several reasons why it failed. One, uh, a complete lack of imagination on the part of the, the club owners um, to think outside their own narrow world, which is sort of shaped by banal numbers and, and uh, the business graphs and that kind of thing. And, and this is what you have, I think, when you have people in an out-of-touch wealthy money world when they uh, have to suddenly interact with the rest of the world it, 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 it highlights uh, how out of touch they are and how never in touch uh, they have been so what you have to ask 
here is like, how did they have such lack of foresight? Well, who were the public relations people that were advising them or their marketing executives? Um, you know, if you're if you're about to revolutionize, revolutionize soccer, how can you come up with a plan that's just so um, like a deadbeat, if you like, you know, a closed league? For big clubs, I mean, was that really the, the, the how did they think they were gonna they were gonna sell that to to the rest of the world? Um, second reason why I think they failed was because they uh, just like uh, incredibly poor planning on their part. I mean, you have to wonder if they did much research before they went ahead with this, or were they just so emboldened by what they thought were their own brilliant visions that they they, they just plowed on regardless. For example, how did they, they think uh, that Paris Saint-Germain were going to react? Uh, I mean, that's a club that's owned by uh, uh, people who own a uh, station in, in the Middle East, which has uh, owns the, the broadcasting rights to the current Champions League until for the next four or five years. Um, in Germany, uh, did they not think it was possible that, that Bayern and Dortmund were going to to have difficulty getting this past the the, the business structures, the the, the fan owned, uh, fan run clubs? So um, I don't know. The whole thing came. The whole thing kind of came out of nowhere. The timing was absolutely bizarre. Right in the middle, uh, just as the UEFA were about to. Um, pass more Champions League reforms, which are only there because these same clubs have threatened to go and leave and form a Super League again and again and again. And um, once the Super League was announced, um, the lack of Dortmund and Bayern and Paris Saint-Germain was, was already a, a very telling sign. I thought it would last maybe a week um, in fact, <laughs> that it lasted two days was was even more in, incredible. The, the mass dissent, uh, the reaction to this to to this uh, um, breakaway, um, was just uh, astonishing. You, as you point out, there was negative coverage from everywhere, from from the media, from the players, from the coaches, from administrators. Um, everybody had. Uh, I mean, the, the players, I think, and the the, the Players like uh, the, the Liverpool players who spoke out and Jurgen Klopp, I think they were blindsided, but they were they were definitely miffed that they had not been told about this. But at the second time, they also are soccer people and 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 they recognise a terrible idea when they see one, so they they were out against it uh, instinctively. I think the smartest people were, were definitely Bayern and Dortmund, who waited, <laughs> who waited to. I mean, everybody's talking about what a great principled stand they made. I don't think they were doing that at all. I think they were just waiting to see what the reaction was. And uh, I think they were probably extremely wise to do that. I think they were the smartest and smartest players in this whole thing because I think they maybe intuited what the reaction would certainly be in Germany among their own fans. And they were probably very relieved when they saw that was a reaction among uh, among fans across Europe and probably the whole world. And uh, and, that, and that's why they were they were smart enough to stick it out and, and, and not and not throw their lot in, even though there was uh, two slots there sitting waiting for them. So yeah, that's uh, broadly speaking, I think that's that's why it failed. I mean, when I talk about a lack of imagination, for for me, uh, European competition, soccer competition, the Champions League especially, have become so predictable that they they're just not interesting anymore. And the group 
stage is a particularly drawn out, tedious stage. And the fact that UEFA have now decided to extend that league stage uh, up to up to ten games plus playoffs is just uh, is just extraordinary. Um, Michel Platini, the much maligned Platini, disgraced UEFA official, um, did have once have a fantastic idea of of just making one big European knockout competition with 256 clubs from around Europe. And I think, well, okay, that's an idea you can discuss. It's probably not an idea that's going to get past <coughs> at this current time in, in, in soccer history. But that's the kind of thing where I think there's a great idea to talk about. Like, why not bring back that sense of adventure into cup competition where there's danger, where you have to win to actually succeed and get on? You don't have this, this get-out clause. Well, if you lose a couple of group games, then you still might get through to the next, progress through to the next round. Um, for me, that's a cup. A cup competition is is where there's a risk to the big teams, where you you can go to uh, somewhere in Latvia or Bulgaria or to to Scotland even and have a chance of uh, of, of your you know your, the big name losing that one season. So uh, it, 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 it's, I find it very funny that these clubs that are always marketing themselves as this massive global brands and we're so great and we do this and that, but they're scared of playing against, you know, Vizlar Krakow in, in, in cup, cup competition in case they accidentally lose. So, but that, but that at the heart of that, though, right, is – and this is this is sort of the biggest sort of so, uh, part of t- uh, source of tension, I think, right, is, you know, in the world of – you know, uh, major investment, private equity, et cetera, right? The the game is less about sort of the uh, the outsized gains and expectations. It's really, at least in the short term, it's about mitigating risk, frankly, eliminating it, right? That's the, 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 the most of the effort uh, before a big investment occurs is around risk evaluation and trying to come up with scenarios where risk is either minimized or essentially uh, guaranteed not to sort of uh, rear its ugly head. Now, it, given that, and given the influx of money and the corporatization, frankly, by the way, not not just of soccer, but also you know sports generally worldwide. It's another issue we could talk about. But that you know, when you talk about that and juxtapose that with what you just described, which is much more noble, much more organic, much more originalist, right? About the sport, right? That's the competition and and the the spirit and and all the and all the uh, alliances that come with that and fandom and all that stuff, which is pure and great and beautiful, right? The problem is that in the world of sports being big and bigger business, right? Uh, this is really sort of the issue that you got to throw out on the table is what you just described, that sort of upset, that sort of more competitive balance, that sort of, you know, anything can happen kind of thing is the absolute antithesis of what investors want to hear. Discuss. That's true. That's, that's <laughs> right. the problem when you. What happens now, right? That, yeah, that's the problem when you mix when you turn sport into business, and um, it's it's the it's the, the big contradiction. Yeah, and as you say, if you're a business, you want to minimize risk. If you're a sports fan, the whole point is is the risk. The, the idea of you go to a game and you don't know what's going to happen. Um, we still experience it if you're watching a team, teams like I do, Lincoln City in the English third division or Eintracht Frankfurt in the Bundesliga, you experience that risk the whole 90 minutes. You're terrified and almost certain that the opponent is going to score a goal every every time they get the ball. For fans of 
Bayern Munich, Manchester City, I presume that watching a game is an entirely different experience in New York, more or less just waiting for them to waiting for them to score and beat up on the opponent and then lift the trophy. I, I, and I really don't see the point of following a team like that at all. Um, how do we? I think we have to start rowing back against that that, that uh, idea of sport purely purely as a business, and as it was uh, in in Europe for the best part of a hundred years. Um, certainly, you, uh, the way sports teams were run was was very poor, and there are much better ways to 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 run a sports business than to just say, "Well, I'm only in it for the soccer," and get out there and try and win. Of course, there has to be a, a financial plan. I'm, I'm definitely not disputing that for a second. What we have to do, though, is, is see how that plan works across the game, not just for those teams at the top. It sounds such an obvious point, and, and I feel bored with myself for making it for, for you know the last 30 years or so. But without it, the, the inevitability is, yeah, more, more wealth at the top doesn't mean the game's any better. It doesn't mean the sport's any better. It just means usually you're pouring in money at the top of the game, which is going straight to agents and to players and enri- enriching them fabulously. But that does not help the game. It puts the top clubs into debt. It puts the bottom clubs into the danger of going bankrupt. And that's something we're seeing more and more, um, you pointed out to me in an email of uh, Bordeaux in the French League filing for bankruptcy. The French League, of course, lost their TV deal um, uh, late last year, I think it was, when the Spanish company Media Pro went out of business. And when you're playing with these high amounts of money, when you have the expectation of that high amount of money, and we, this is something um, we can talk about all the way back to the North American Soccer League, you're going. You're, you're making a big risk if uh, if one of your backers, be it a, a huge oil company, be it a foreign government, um, be it a, a extremely wealthy businessman, if their business suddenly goes down the pan, or if they suddenly lose interest, then your club and sometimes your league is left sitting high and dry and and, and without any cash. And that's because there is no long-term financial planning in most of the European leagues. Um, unlike the, uh, you see it in the German, everybody's been talking about the German uh, 50 plus one rule this week, which is also very amusing because for a long time, Germany has been talking about abolishing it. Now it's been looked at as, as, as the ideal way to go forward for the rest of the game. Well, for our audience, so why don't you explain what that 50 plus one idea is? Because it seems to have taken some new life given the the sort of uh, the rep, uh, what's happened during the course of the week. Uh, it's probably new to a lot of people, but in a nutshell, you want to explain what 50 plus one is? Yes, it basically means that no no individual uh, or any particular company can take over a, a German soccer club. They get the maximum amount, uh, number of shares they can um, own is 49%. So the 51% uh, of the voting rights within a club always stay um, with with the with the fans or with or with the club itself, uh, so to speak. Um, and, that, and that can be publicly floated or privately held. But the idea is to keep the the majority ownership, essentially significant minority ownership, versus yeah, 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 exactly. And it, it's. Uh, 
They've been talking about the ironic thing is in Germany, the discussion has been over the last two years to to try and abolish 50 plus one because they say we can't compete with the Premier League unless we have more outside investors and our teams are not competing well enough in Europe and in the Champions League because the, the Premier League has so much money. Fortunately, so far, the, 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 it's, it's held out. There's another contradiction in that there are some clubs who get around the rule because they were grandfathered into it, like Bayer Leverkusen, owned by Bayer, and uh, Vorfeld Wolfsburg, owned by Volkswagen, who um, uh, have been owned by those uh, companies ever since they were founded almost uh, well, over 100 years ago. So um, they were grandfathered in. Um, Red Bull uh, have got around it in Leipzig and um, Hoffenheim, uh, also uh, owned by a computer entrepreneur who put a lot of money into the club. So it's a, it's a little bit strange. I mean, it is a great rule, but it's inconsistently um, uh, applied for various historical reasons. Um, still, it's it's been heartening to see in, in the British press this week, for example, how, how much that has been discussed, to see politicians um, finally calling for a root branch review of the way soccer is run in England. And uh, you probably know there are several clubs have gone to the wall in, in England over the last few years, usually unscrupulous owners, uh, coming in, taking over the club, promising big things, and then next thing you know, they've sold off the stadium to a supermarket, and and the club's left with debts and without a home. And um, so, uh, yeah, that's uh, fifty plus one explained, and and and, and it, it it is a good rule. And uh, I'm very, and as I say, I'm glad Germany has not dumped it. And it's all it will be interesting to see if it has its time in in the coming months or if. The European Super League goes back, brushes itself off, um, uh, sews up its wounds and comes back and, and tries to, to make an, an, another attempt. Does a UEFA or even a FIFA uh, have a role to play in this in terms of maybe I don't know, harmonizing that kind of sort of rule structure? Because you, you hinted at the Premier League, right, in some respects, is, is given people a model to kind of emulate and or uh, try to upstage, right, because of all the money in the outside, right? But but that the, that imbalance, right, is is now polluting, if you will, some of these other leagues in sort of the same model. And if that's just a hastening of demise, right, um, I guess the question is, how do you harmonize these domestic leagues, at least structurally, for an idea like that? Or is that does that is that kind of a, a fool's errand, given that, you know, domestic leagues are domestic leagues? Yeah, I think these are going to be huge questions in, in the coming months and years. Whether I mean, UEFA did try with a financial fair play, and they were not able to to really uh, assert themselves on that, and they applied it inconsistently. They, they got into trouble with the law in the case of Manchester City, who managed to get their verdict overturned. So we need to. Uh, I think they need to sit back down again, all of uh, the FAs together. And, and start discussing constructive, meaningful ways that we can um, move the game in a direction where it benefits all countries, all clubs in all countries. Where we, we uh, people are talking a lot this week about soccer and the cultural heritage, and that's and, and that's a kind of cliche, but it's also very important the way that thousands of clubs in, in countries like Germany and, and England provide a very important part of the, of the social fabric. 
And here in Frankfurt, for example, there are, I think there are around 70 or 80 soccer clubs alone. And that's not a huge city. It's a city of seven, 700,000 people. So, and, and you get a great, it's a fantastic way for me as a, as a referee to find out about the social fabric of, of this city. And it's been crushing to have all the games canceled over the last six months. And it, it kind of takes, takes the, the, the heart out of the, the heartbeat out of the daily life of the city in, in, in many ways, because the soccer clubs are such a crucial, a crucial part of, of the social network of the city. And they're staffed almost exclusively by hardworking volunteers who, who love the game and who are at the, the much quoted grassroots of football and who to me are just as if, if not way more important than, than, than a club like uh, a club like Bayern Munich. So when, when UEFA and, and uh, the German FA sits down and looks at the last week's events and think, why has this happened? And why were so many people against it? They have to think about every single one of these tiny clubs all the way down to, to, to the, the village out in the sticks and, and how this gets people out of the houses, how it gets young people out training and keeping fit, getting to know each other, getting to know people from different backgrounds, playing against teams from different backgrounds. And um, I, I think that if we, don't, if we don't have some kind of um, proper overview of that, then, then, then we, can, we can forget it and say, you know, okay, next time they come back with their European Super League, let them, you know, let them do it if that's, what, if, if, if that's the best we can do. But I think we can do much, much better than that. Well, look, some some of some of those folks would also say that that some of those ideas uh, smack of again playing devil's advocate, right? So uh, you know where I sort of sit on this it smacks of collectivism or, or socialism or uh, absolutely, right? absolutely. And, and, and <laughs> now, now we now we're into another realm of of dissension within the, the sport, right? Uh, and uniquely, I think, uh, and you know, is and sitting here in the states, right? You know, twenty five years of Major League Soccer, right, which is a closed uh, franchise based and and you know very similar to all the other major sports in the United States, right? That model in the U.S. has been always closed, right? There hasn't been promotion and relegation in any of the sports, let alone soccer. And uh, again, this smacks to the investor uh, as a, as an anachronism to why they would get involved, right? Because any of these great uh, uh, lurches forward in terms of new stadiums and all the investment stuff in the league. Has been because you're basically buying a franchise in a system that is effectively guaranteed not to uh, lose value per se, because there's no risk of a team going down or a team, you know, sort of falling on hard times. Because, and and arguably, you know, I don't want to sort of pick on MLS. I mean, the, the competitiveness has been relatively even right it's truly on any given day and but but you know i would say as an american soccer fan for a long time you know it's not like we're killing it on the world cup stage right all the sort of benefits that we're supposed to be getting you know the the business part of this of of the sport the the way it's set up here is still a business and and it hasn't necessarily become i mean it's an amazing feat in this country over 25 years and then some for for a league and all these great stadiums and stuff but you know it's not it's not sort of perfect nirvana either, competitively or otherwise, right? We never win, you know, even in our uh, uh, Champions Cup in, in the in uh, North and Central America, right? Uh, Concacaf. It's still, you know, it's still a, a plotting kind of thing. I guess the question in there is, does collectivism, socialism, 
uh, charged words for sure. A closed league structure that arguably nurtures and supports and roots, right? I'm a big believer that MLS at some, my understanding was MLS needed to go that route in the 90s to get this thing finally rooted in this country, this sport, after years and years and NASL, et cetera. But now it's 25 years on and it still hasn't uh, led up on those leashes. There's no movement yet to kind of allow more fluidity, uh, more polyglot ownership structures, the idea of relegation and, and promotion. It's still very much a closed system, and that still rankles most of the, the Euro snobs here in the country. On the other hand, the league still exists and is steady. Compare it with the, the, the North American Soccer League, as I often do, and you have to say, well, uh, it built up from a starting point of 10 or 12 teams, or was it even eight teams in the first season of MLS, uh, and um, has steadily and sensibly expanded. Now, I don't think MLS is beyond criticism. I think it, what is lacking maybe are a couple of more, yeah, I guess you'd say it, it kind of lacked maybe glamorous teams or big names, but hasn't really had the time yet to, to build up those kind of teams. And I, I, I'm kind of agnostic on the subject of, of promotion and relegation in the U.S., and I know it's a very emotional uh, issue for some people and um, very, very two partisan sides to that debate. Um, but I think it, it, it depends a little bit on what you expect from a soccer league, what you expect from a soccer club. Do you think the whole point of building up a league is in order to make a U.S. national team good enough to win the World Cup in an ideal world? Uh, maybe. Um, for me, the important thing about having a soccer team in my town is I have a soccer team in my town. I've got a team to go and watch, to go and support. I've got a community of people I can see, I can talk about with. We have common ground. And it adds to the identity of the town or the city that I live in. And whether they win or not, I think if you're following a sports team broadly, you have to be able to cope with the idea of failure as well as the idea of success. So, um, yeah, I, I, I am quite uh, uh, in favor of the collectivist idea of sport, that the, 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 the participation and, and the social role is more important than um, glorious nights or having a player who's earning uh, $150,000 a day or a week or however much it is that these fantastical salaries add up to nowadays. What do you think happens now? Um, let's look sort of towards the future, maybe short term and long term, right? We kind of discussed that, you know, some of these forces were well underway, still are. Um, what, what do you think happens to this Super League, you know, in the coming days and weeks and, and the idea of it still wrangling? It sounds to me like the idea is not going to go away. A matter of fact, I think that there are a lot of people outside of Europe who kind of perhaps saw this as an inevitable internationalization of a Super League, right, where it's not just uh, concentrated in Europe. Um, and there's a lot of international money still. And, you know, again, this is against the backdrop of sports being increasingly big business. Does this idea go away? Does the the fan revolt and, and everybody who's been reacting so violently and so quickly 
um, kind of sort of dissipate over time? Or, or do you think that maybe we're at a point where things may need to be seriously rethought? What do you think happens? Um, I think that the, it's going to be interesting to see how quickly they come back. Um, I don't think there's going to be a reaction. I don't think there's going to be another attempt at this for quite a long time because the the, the ESL is, is suffering severe wounds and it's going to take those a long time to heal because every time they come back now, everybody's going to remember this astonishing, groundbreaking week in soccer and they're going to have to really really rethink their ideas before they come up with with something that's that that's not going to meet with the same rebuttal that they have uh, suffered uh, in, in the last eight days will they learn anything so will will if, if the us if the sorry esl comes back um are they going to come back with a plan that takes into account um the essence of the protests uh what is you know for example will they come back with a with a league that says okay we thought about this whole no relegation thing and we've decided, OK, we're going to maybe introduce one or two relegation spots for, for all the teams, not just uh, <laughs> the, the, the second class teams. Um, will it take into account the UEFA, the national leagues? Will it address the player concerns about too many games? Um, will it contain a, a solidarity element that would, would place the league in an international structure? Um, the, the Super League people complained last week that nobody picked up on their on, on, on their uh, prepared, preferred uh, solidarity payment that they, they claimed was within their whole package. But they presented the whole thing so badly that nobody nobody even got to see that before before the whole idea was was thrown out. Right. They even so, used, they even used COVID as an excuse for a couple of sentences too. Yeah. So so they, they they so if they come if they come back and with that kind of attitude, then um, you would have to presume there's a chance we'll get a hearing. Um, I think the more likely thing is that they will they will come back and try to to bully it through they'll probably try to find a push they'll come back with so much financial backing and probably with such a team of expensive lawyers i i think you look at the the, the attitude of perez and, and uh, at real madrid and agnelli at juventus these are not guys who are used to to having their ideas turned down you could tell that they were absolutely astonished at the reaction last week so they probably are not kind of introspective people to go away and, and, and seriously think about why this went wrong. I think they're more likely to to come back and, and try and push it through by, by sheer financial force. Um, I mean, I hope I'm wrong about that. Uh, I think what we really need now, I mean, is, is really for, for, for clubs and administrations all to sit down and, and have a really, and with fans, um, with media, with, with any experts they can summon from people from academia and sit down and, and really look at the, the game as a whole and say, how, how can we make the future work? How can we take into account the investors and take into account the fans? How can we take into account the, the players and their demands and their needs and where that all fits into to uh, the entire game, all the way down to the to, to the six-year-old kicking in in, a, in his local club for the, his or her local club for the first time. And if we don't do that, then then 
you know, that's there is no. I mean, for me, there is no other way forward right now. The, the way the way things are standing, of course, people forget quickly. The Champions League starts up again. All of a sudden, you know, the media are just talking about, uh, uh, you know, Ronaldo and Messi and how brilliant everything is and what great players they are. And um, we'll, we're going to lose sight sight of the discussion. But I I think the fans have had such a shock. Uh, at seeing what can happen. Uh, people have been really shaken out of their complacency. That, that, that My hope is that, that, that there will be a thorough and, and long-term change in, in the dialogue about, about the way we run sports, the idea of how much is it part of an entertainment history, industry, how much is uh, uh, sport part of people's, important part of people's lives uh, that contributes to their physical health, their mental health, and to, to the health of a whole community. Do we, do we see possibly uh, nationalism perhaps uh, rising again? And I, don't, I don't mean that sort of in a negative political context, but it's certainly also against that backdrop too, certainly over the last number of years politically around the world. Um, but I'm just I'm struck by just how quick and visceral, although I know it's been under the surface for some time, say in the Premier League, right? I, I Stan Kroenke, out, right? Uh, uh, the Glazers, right? Never sort of fully embraced, shall we say, in the Man United uh, side of things. Uh, uh, y- you know, uh, even the uh, the the Abramoviches and, and all these other sort of foreign, but especially the American owners, the John Henrys of the world, who, you know, have this dramatic mea culpa, right? You know, like, again, you couldn't have seen this, right? Well, no, but you came out of Boston and, and owned the Boston Red Sox baseball franchise, right? And the dalliance in soccer, right? It's a little different when you're starting to meddle with all those things that you just described, right? You're this outsider cash in hand, right, is, you know, kind of playing around with our legacies here. And, and that's, you know, there's a line, I guess, that gets crossed, and it sounds like this one is it. I guess the, the question in there is, uh, do you see some uh, reactive uh, 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 recoiling, shall we say, from current owners, maybe even uh, uh, giving in to or getting out of their investments because of this kind of thing? Do they see a, yeah. do they see a wall here, or do they just see the wall need to be break, broken down for the future? I don't think soccer fans object to anybody's nationality as, as long as they understand the game and understand what, what they're getting into when they buy, uh, for example, a, a, a Premier League soccer club. Um, obviously, the Krunkers and the Glazers are just woefully underinformed about what soccer means to people in a, in a country like uh, the UK. And um, uh, the fact that they're American is really neither here nor there, but other than the fact that the, the, the sporting culture in America, uh, as, you, as we, we've been discussing this past hour, is, is something completely different compared with Europe, where investors invest in sports clubs because they're businessmen. So um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's, uh, it's, I mean, yeah, people talk about the American owners. I, th- I th- I think it's just more of a reference handle rather than any kind of uh, insidious nationalistic uh, element in there that, 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 that are overplaying the idea that, that this is a, a foreign thing infect, infecting our sport. Um, I mean, there have been just as many, uh, you know, bad, badly run clubs with really bad British businessmen, certainly lower down, lower down the football league. And uh, the idea that you you're, have no idea about how to run a football club just because you're American is completely untrue. It's, it's the same for 
lots and lots of people with a business background trying to bring apply that business background to to a completely rogue identity you know this is this is a, a, a soccer club you're talking about it's not a business and and no matter how much you want it to be a business and how much you bring in gurus and marketing people and branders and you change the badge and the color and the strip and the club song all you're doing is undermining that identity and you you don't unless you understand why there's resistance to that then you're 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 probably investing your money in the wrong in the wrong place you should really be buying a a, a ball bearing factory or a, you know a branch of staples or something yeah that's that's especially interesting and i guess sort of I'll wrap up with this one i i um you know, I I th I see another model here that's sort of been uh, you know been pursued over the last number of years is sort of the, I guess the multinational model, right? So a Man City, you know, uh, being the major investor with the Yankees of NYCFC in Major League Soccer, right? They have a franchise, if you will, in Aus in the Australian League, right? Uh, you know, Red mm -hmm. Bull's got a couple of teams, you know, between. Uh, uh, in Europe, as well as uh, the the Red Bulls in in uh, Major League Soccer, I, I wonder if if that is a good or a bad model in of itself. I, I just know as a an American soccer fan, long suffering, mind you, uh, when I see NYCFC, I, I I revile against and revolt against them because I, I I hate everything that that stands for. Right, which is simply, if you will, a, a, a B team. A sub, a, a shadow or a feeder, if you will, supposedly, I guess, to the the main franchise in Man City. I, I just it feels like you're just kind of using MLS as a, as a way station for an international brand. Or perhaps I'm being naive that maybe that is going to be the model. I mean, we in the U.S. we see many club teams, especially from the U.K., but also from from Spain and others setting up domestic camps in the United States, right? Looking as a, as a feeder system, right? Uh, taking minority or even majority ownership stakes in in club teams, et cetera. Uh, you know, maybe it's inevitable that that is a model or perhaps the model where one makes an investment in a multi-team, multi-country kind of environment. Maybe, oh, maybe that's just another version of the same ills that we've kind of been hinting at here. Yeah, possibly. Um, it, it depends a lot on how the clubs go about it. I mean, if you build up a structure and you, you build training facilities and you offer um, uh, possibilities to a wide variety of, of, of youth teams and uh, to, to women teams as well, then I think you can make a, a positive impact in, in, in that particular community. It's not necessarily crucial where, uh, where the parent club is as long as the parent club comes with benevolent motives uh, as well as the desire to to nurture young players and, and find stars before somebody else gets their hands on them so i don't i don't see that as the the, the ultimate evil in, in in sports right now it, because it depends a lot where that money is coming from in the case you say manchester city oh, we know we know that that money is coming from uh, from the gulf region from backed by a, a, a less than democratic government and if, you, if you're a manchester city fan and you can you can square that away and and, and say i don't mind i'm still going to support my team whatever then 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 that's uh, that's that's your decision uh, your view of it i can also 
more than understand when you <laughs> when you kind of revolted by uh, by the whole idea of NYCFC, which is is, uh, is a little bit yeah, it's, the whole thing is, is is a little bit fake. All right, time to promote uh, Ian. We uh, obviously want to call out your um, great book that we talked about in an earlier episode about the North American Soccer League. What uh, what's uh, been the response to that book over the last uh, couple of years, and and what other things? Uh, have you done since as well as perhaps uh, in the hopper for the future? Well, rock and roll soccer has been a bit, a bit of a slow burner. I still get a lot of emails about it and a lot of requests to to talk about it. I think it, it flew under the radar in the UK and in the US when it was published in 2016. Uh, it didn't get uh, uh, that much attention from the sports press in America. But I had had a, had a lot of nice feedback about it from um, former players, any people, former fans of the NASL. Uh, a lot of review on, on the Goodreads, a lot of reviews on the Goodreads website. So um, it's been it's been uh, you know at the time I was a little worried about it because there are so many soccer books out there and they, they come and go and they disappear very quickly. So it, it's still available. It won't cost you much money. And um, I think it's still, it's a very important book in terms of, of tracking uh, what has happened in, in, in international soccer since the 1970s. And my selling point of it was the NASL was unwittingly or not the, the inspiration for the, for the, English Premier League and, and the European Champions League in many ways. And the crash and burn story is maybe also a, a, an ongoing lesson for how we run sports leagues, teams, and, and, and franchises. Um, after uh, after that, episode, I it's by, by the way, it's our episode number 49. Uh, so for those who have not listened to the episode, please, by all means, find that either on our website or in your podcast feed. And I'm sorry, other stuff going on too? Yeah, and then and then in two thousand a couple of years ago, I published a, a book called The Quiet Fan, um, which uh, has also largely flown under the radar. Uh, was uh, published by a, a UK publisher called Unbound, and um, it was kind of a memoir and kind of a love letter to soccer, and it was trying to explain um, why soccer is important to me, and I. The book, I think, was trying to do a number of different things, which made it kind of hard for people to get a grasp on it and made it hard for me to explain why people ought to read it. So uh, it was missing that elevator cell. Um, if you were to ask me now, why did you write that book and why do you think anybody should read it? I would say it's entertaining, uh, trying kind of, I hope, funny. And but it also offers up uh, an alternative view of watching sport. And, and my whole shtick, I guess you'd call it, in the book was was calling out the idea that we we watch games because of the results. Um, I wanted to create a, a kind of diary of my life, focusing on twelve particular games with twelve particular themes of life and how these games brought back memories of particular times in my life. But, so it was seeing sport as a kind of marker of our times, of, of our existence, rather than something that's important in itself, because um, sport in a way is, is kind of meaningless if you take it by itself. But if you put it in its 
in its social context, if you put it in the context of where was I the time that, you know, what was I doing the day Germany won the 2014 World Cup? What was I doing the day Lincoln City got promoted in, in, in 1976 or whatever? There's random examples. It was tempting to look at, at, at uh, myself as a fan for reasons other than just jumping up and down and, and, and cheering. I felt I felt that the, the, ever since the 1970s and 80s, fans were either maligned as hooligans or as these sort of obsessive, passionate, a word which I really dislike, obsessive, passionate fanatics who would do all and everything and give all and everything just to follow their team. I think that's kind of a media, a media construct and it doesn't really, a marketing construct as well, it doesn't really um, at all correspond to my own experience of following soccer and, and all the other fans I know. There are very few people I know who are like either one of those stereotypes. And the, the, the way we, we follow sport is a kind of, it's a Saturday thing. It's what you do on Saturday or on Wednesday night or whatever. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic diversion and it, it kind of like uh, the, 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 the pandemic when games were, were suddenly suspended a year ago for two months, it kind of really threw that into, into light. The whole uh, one, of, one of the things I was trying to say was as long as soccer's going on, you feel like you know, the world is, is broadly okay because no matter what's happening in your personal life or in political scene or whatever, Come Saturday, the teams are out on the field, <laughs> and then all of a sudden we had this 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 uh, international medical emergency where the teams weren't out on the field, and so and that was kind of distressing in in many ways. And to have the fans still absent from most of our stadiums is is it continues to contribute to the to that distress in a way. It's still uh, making these very uh, unique and and, and sad times. All right. That is uh, clearly not the last time we're going to be talking about this topic for sure, either specifically about the Super League or what used to be the Super League, uh, soccer generally, uh, and the money that's uh, creeping ever so more deeply into the sport and what might come from it uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, certainly sports globally. Uh, for sure. Uh, all these themes uh, we've talked about on previous episodes uh, are just, you know, everything old is new again. And uh, this particular episode is just uh, just the latest in a, in a long series uh, of uh, trials and travails of the foibles of, of certain aspects of professional sports. That's what we focus here on this show. And uh, we will continue to do it until we find it uh, not interesting. And that may be for a long time to come for sure. All right, let's see. Ian Plenderly's writings can be found on a, on a whole host of different publications. But the one I want to call your attention to is uh, our pals at Soccer America, now celebrating its 50th anniversary. Happy birthday to Soccer America, the chronicler extraordinaire of the beautiful game here in the United States, has been for decades now. And uh, you can check them out at SoccerAmerica.com. Uh, you can uh, sign up and get a few free articles to get a taste of of what you've been missing and, and hopefully subscribe, for God's sakes, and, and enjoy all the fine writings. And we want to say uh, a great thanks to uh, Mike Watala and uh, Paul Kennedy uh, for getting us reconnected to Ian this week, uh, as well as, of course, their uh, longtime support of the show, uh, their original introduction to our pal Paul Gardner, who we hope 
can come back on the show again to uh, reminisce against on, uh, with us on some more stuff on the NASL, et cetera. Uh, and uh, let's see, Ian's book, as we highlighted in uh, episode number 49, if you never listened to that one, go back and find it and listen to that too. You're gonna, That's a, a, a wonderful conversation and a lot of fun. Uh, the book uh, is called Rock and Roll Soccer, The Short Life and Fast Times of the North American Soccer League. It's a hoot. You will enjoy it. And uh, it is now out in both paperback and hardcover editions. Uh, and the best place that we would recommend you uh, considering uh, and actually executing a purchase for said book, as well as all the other books, for God's sakes, is from our website, goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 213 with Ian Plenderleith, or if you're inclined, episode number 49 featuring Ian Plenderleith. Either way, you will find a convenient link to this book. And uh, when you do so and you purchase it that way, not only will you be whisked away to Amazon, which is probably the fastest and least expensive uh, manner by which to uh, secure a copy of this book on the planet. Uh, it's also a, a way to uh, share with us a few nickels and dimes, and I literally mean nickels and dimes, uh, of referral love for us to uh, you know put into our coffers and uh, certainly not to, uh, to benefit and wine and dine, but uh, to uh, put into the show, to pay the uh, proverbial uh, lights and electricity and server space and uh, all kinds of stuff. The fees for our editor. Yes, our good friend, Jerry Payne. Yeah, he's, he doesn't come cheap, you know. Jerry Payne, Audio Excellence. He's the guy who puts all of our pieces together each and every week. He's been doing it for four plus years now. And, uh, and it's not for free, he does it. So, you know, you know when you're buying your books and your, your, uh, your stuff, uh, you know, go through our website, why don't you? And help us out, will you? Thanks. Uh, let's see. While you're on the website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, you can find all of our old episodes. Uh, they're all there for you to stream and download and do whatever you want. Uh, and by the way, wherever you listen, wherever podcatcher or system that you listen to, uh, if there's a place to rate and review the show, please, by all means, do so. And uh, hopefully you'll be favorably inclined, maybe a five-star rating and some couple of good words and stuff. We appreciate that to no end. And that helps other people find the show. So please do that. It's a good thing. And if you're not buying stuff from us, hey, it's the least you can do for us. We appreciate that. Uh, our social media feed. Sure. Follow us uh, on Facebook. There's a page devoted to us there. Follow us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Follow us on Twitter. Uh, we're at, uh, at Good Seats Still. Uh, let's see. You can send us an email at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, you can also subscribe to our little email uh, weekly newsletter. Uh, there's a link to that uh, somewhere on the uh, on the website, too. All right. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we appreciate it to no end. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next week. Get your shots and uh, take care. Take care.